Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMLS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Welcome to another insightful episode of OMLAS with your host, Aryaman Varma. Today, we are honored to be joined by a distinguished guest who's played pivotal roles in shaping the political landscape of the United Kingdom. With a career spanning various high-profile positions, including Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and much more, our guest brings a wealth of experience and expertise to our discussion. Please join us in extending a warm welcome for Mr. Sajid Javid. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks, Arvin. Thanks for having me on. Right, to get started then, could you please share a bit about your background and journey into politics? Yeah, sure. Look, um, well, I'll give you a, a, a quick summary. My parents were uh, immigrants from Pakistan. They came to the UK in the 1960s, uh, like many people from the subcontinent, to build a better future, more for their sort of children to come rather than themselves. Uh, they settled in Rochdale in the north of England. My dad's first job was working on a cotton mill. Then he was a bus driver. Eventually, he had a shop, and that's where my first sort of memories properly begin. And by then, we'd moved to Bristol. I lived above the family shop, right. along with my four brothers. My mum worked in the shop, and and then I went to my local uh, comprehensive school, first of my family to go to university. Uh, by the time I was at university, I thought I wanted a career in the city, which I, I did first in New York and then London then Singapore. And for a long time, I wanted to get into politics. And I was very fortunate that by the age of 40, I was elected. Uh, so that was in 2010 as a member of parliament for Broxgrove. Sure. Uh, and just touching on your background a little bit with, you know, you being the first to attend university, what was, this, what was that like? I mean, I'm sure now it's truly special when you think about it back in the past, but in that, at that moment, what was it like? Um, it was, um, you know, it sounds strange, and uh, maybe especially to people that, are, that know all about universities, applying to universities now, but I, when I was, um, was sort of 17, 18, I was doing my A-levels at 17, and uh, I was convinced, just like my brothers and a lot of my friends, I would leave, uh, leave education, go and start full-time work at 18. And then a family friend told me about universities and I did some research and uh, I ended up going to Exeter University to study economics and politics. Right. And once I got there, it all first felt a bit strange because at that time at Exeter University, something like 90%, maybe more, of the students there were from private schools. And I'd come from this local comprehensive and so it felt a bit out of place at first, but quickly sort of settled in and made a lot of friends. And, and, and university really opened doors and changed my life. Right. Yeah, of course. And um, you've obviously held various crucial roles in the UK government. But being Secretary of State for Health and Social Care during the pandemic must have been exceptionally challenging. So what were the most important lessons that you learned from during this unprecedented crisis? Yeah, and of course, it was challenging. Look, I, I've been very fortunate in my political career. I've, I've run six government departments. And as you say, one of them, the last one, which I uh, stepped down from last year, was the health and social care department. When I when I came into that role, it was uh, still really in the middle of the pandemic. The country was still in lockdown and things, and and that's what made it really challenging. I think that for anyone, you know, overseeing the health service, social care, 
biggest department of government, budget of almost 200 billion pounds. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big endeavor, but to do it in a pandemic uh, where a lot of questions are unanswered, there's so much uncertainty was, was tough. But, you know, I think, look, looking back, I, I benefited from certainly from having experience of having run other government departments, so understanding how government works and especially how Whitehall works. And then also uh, I had some really good uh, advisors, you know, whether they're scientific advisors, medical advisors um, and uh, some experts on pandemics and things. And that helped me a lot. Sure. And just on that note about scientists and uh, sort of like your team, I guess. Yeah. What was the sort of structure while you were Secretary of State for Health and Social Care? Was there like a certain number of people that were on your team? What was it like? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, a, a core team of first of what we call often called the Whitehall Special Advisors and what's called my private office, which were the civil servants that sort of were in my direct day to day team. And then I had uh, a lot of specialists within the department, you know, everything from, you know, for example, uh, the, the chief medical officer uh, of the country uh, to the, the head of the UK Health Security Agency and many others. Um, and then, of course, the experts, the medical experts, especially within the NHS itself. And this sort of core team, I would meet with regularly. I mean, during the height of the pandemic, regularly, meaning like at least twice a day, uh, a meeting in the morning, one in the afternoon. And we and they would be designed these meetings to make decisions, not just for updates, of course, which were important, but they were decision driven meetings. And uh, obviously I would chair them and then make the final decision. But, you know, that was, I think we needed a steady pace of uh, decision-making to, to get the job done. Sure, sure. and uh, given your extensive expertise, of course, as a past Chancellor of the Exchequer, what are your mm. thoughts on the economic recovery post-pandemic, and where do you think the economy will be in five or ten years? Look, I think it's true that for, for almost every economy around the world was hard hit uh, by the pandemic. Uh, obviously, for everyone, it was, it was uh, unexpected and and uh, it's true as much for developing economies as much for advanced economies. That said, I think overall, you know, sort of economically, the response the UK government had to the pandemic and its challenges were, were the right ones in terms of supporting people, supporting the economy overall. Uh, and now that we are well and truly past the pandemic, I think we are you're starting to see a return to a much more healthier economy. There are new challenges, of course, you know, the, the war in Ukraine and uh, the impact that's had, especially on energy prices, has been significant. We've seen a, a change in the cycle uh, of interest rates, and obviously that's having an impact. But I, I remain very optimistic about the UK economy. The economic foundations are very strong. And I think compared to many other countries, you know, despite some you know, recent volatility in, in, in politics that, you know, we're seen still as a very stable uh, country. And, uh, and, and, and so many of the things work for the UK economy, your know, talent, you know, the talent, whether it's domestic or talent from abroad, new trade deals, uh, record levels of investment. So, the, of course, there's challenges. But I think the, the UK economy has a, has a bright future. And one final thing I'd add just while we're in the economy is that you'll know that, uh, or you may know that recently the ONS, the sure. Office of National Statistics, had revised its assessment of the performance of the UK economy since the pandemic. Yeah. And it turns out that the UK economy has recovered faster and actually has grown faster 
than almost all our major uh, competitors in the G7, certainly more than Germany and France. And, you know, and that's a good sign. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, leaving the UK outside for a second, which mm. country do you think, which country were you most impressed by in terms of their response to the pandemic? Look, I, I think um, if I, so you're saying leave the UK out. I mean, I think obviously we didn't get everything right. No country did, but you know, yeah. certainly with the UK, I think the vaccine program, the success of that was what made a significant positive difference. Now, if I look at other uh, countries, um, I, I think if you, especially if you, I mean, I like to, like many people, I like to go on facts and, and, and uh, assess uh, using that. Um, I think uh, Germany um, overall uh, did, did reasonably well. Um, and probably in Europe, I'd pick that country. Outside of Europe, I think uh, South Korea right. uh, did, did very well. And there were countries, of course, that took a very different approach. And uh, that doesn't make it the right or wrong approach, but they certainly had, if you look at Taiwan, uh, for example, uh, had some very um, positive outcomes. Uh, but it, it, it was a, one of the few countries in the world that managed to almost completely close its borders. Yeah, true. Uh, and climate change is obviously a prevalent and increasingly pressing global issue. How do you see the UK's role in addressing climate change and what initiatives have you actually been involved in to combat it? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I'd say certainly during my time in, in, in Parliament since 2010, I think the UK has got a very proud record. Uh, since uh, 2010, we have seen the, the biggest fall of emissions uh, of any you know, G7 country, I think more than any G20 country. And that's something that I think the UK can be proud of. Our levels of uh, electricity generated by renewable sources has gone up from something like, you know, five or six percent to over 50 percent. And uh, and there's many other examples where the UK uh, has done well. Um, you asked me about uh, my sort of involvement in, in, in any of that. And I haven't had responsibility for that portfolio directly but I have indirectly through some of the roles I've had in government. The bit I'd pick actually would be when I was the chancellor and, uh, and, and less about climate change, but still very much about our planet and the health of our planet. I am some, yeah, I'm one of these people that are very concerned about declining biodiversity and the impact that that is having right. on anything you know, from you know, our food supply, our biosecurity, um, the, uh, the general level of uh, um, health, and, uh, and and that's why I was proud that when I was the uh, chancellor, uh, that I had uh, worked with uh, Professor uh, Dasgupta from Cambridge, who had done who had been commissioned by the government to do an independent review into the economics of declining biodiversity, and he's published what I think is a seminal piece of work. I think that over time that it will become to be seen as important as say something as a stern review was for climate change. And, uh, and the reason I just picked that, I think, I know you asked about climate change, but you know, climate change, uh, biodiversity, they're two sides of the same coin. They work, uh, yeah, I think you need to have policies that work well together uh, in addressing both challenges. And, and that's something I'm particularly proud to uh, you know, to be involved in, which is uh, trying to work with others to reverse the decline in biodiversity globally. Right, and what? Just quickly on that, um, what, what, why do you have such a focus on biodiversity? Like, what actually, you know? Because I think it's been neglected globally. Right. Uh, yeah. So, 
you know, by that I'm not suggesting for a second that the world is doing enough on climate change. I think it's clear that uh, to, to meet commitments, whether it's like the UK's net zero commitment or similar commitments by other countries, obviously a lot more has to be done over the coming decades. But biodiversity, I think that uh, it's just been neglected in that you know, people just haven't really generally focused on it enough. There might be good reasons for that. But, you know, we, we rely, we as in human mankind, we rely on uh, nature, you know, for everything. When the right. air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, you know, the, all of that comes from nature. Every single thing we consume comes from nature. Sure. And nature is depleting at a record rate. And if we don't do something to halt that decline, then mankind will pay a huge price. So I just think it's been neglected. Yeah, I think I think I'd also agree. That's a fair that's a fair point. Everything mm. we do is relying on nature. Everything. Yeah, um, but this podcast. <laughs> sure, um, and I'm sure, given the amount of impact that you've had on the UK political landscape, um, you've probably come across thousands of ethical dilemmas. Interesting question: What is an ethical dilemma that you faced. What, what's the most important ethical dilemma, or the one that you remember most distinctly um, that you faced in your career so far? Mm. I mean, you do in government. Government is about making decisions, of course, and decisions are all about trade-offs. So not everyone's going to be happy with the decision you make, but you've got to, right? Your government is also about allocating limited resources. There's always going to be an opportunity and, cost with whatever you do. Yes, absolutely. So you asked me about that. I'll give you an example. When I was health secretary, you know, obviously there's new drugs all the time being invented. Fantastic drugs to help people with cancer, with dementia, whatever their illness. There's, you know, as we speak, there's new drugs being developed. Right. They cost a lot of money, right? Sure. And no health system in the world can afford every single drug for everyone who needs it. So you've got to have, a, have some ethical system of, of making a decision. You know, what if a new drug is created that can save the lives of, of um, a you know, couple of hundred people that have some rare disease, but the cost of that is, you know, I'm making it up in this example, but a hundred million, but with the same hundred million pounds, you could save 20,000 lives. Yeah, you know, you have to make that decision, and it's tough because you'll be saying to the people with the rare disease, "I'm sorry, but we can't afford it," right? Sure. And and they're not going to be happy, understandably. But you, know, you need some mechanism, and I I I came across these types of decisions uh, actually many times when I was health secretary. Right. Um, and what 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 did you actually conclude? Did you? Well, the, the, I think in, in summary, the conclusion was that what, what government should focus on are healthy life years, you know, prolonging life years. So in other words, I'll give you an example that if you could spend a pound prolonging the life of someone, say, who's 20 years old for another 30, 40 years, that's probably you know, a better ethical decision than spending the same amount of money prolonging the life of someone who's 90 year old for another year. Sure. Uh, and talking about sort of like, um, how would you call them, uh, like quality of life or standard of living mm. objectives, which one do you think, it, what, what objective do you think is the most important? Is it life expectancy? Is it literacy rates? What do you think is the most important? 
Look, look, they're all they're all important. I think for any, you, I don't think you'd find any government that's just going to focus on 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 you know one one or even two sure. objectives. Um, and and this is one of the challenges for any any government in any society is that how do you balance all these competing objectives? You know, so so for me as health secretary, you know, I became very focused on you know, what I call healthy life expectancy, healthy life years. You know, how do we prolong that? And especially the disparities that exist within our own country. You know, the, the give you an example that someone, you know, someone living in, in London on average has almost 14 years more life expectancy than some of the most deprived neighborhood, neighborhoods in, in the UK. And that is down to a number of factors. They could be economic, but it could also be high levels of smoking in some areas, high levels of drug addiction or alcohol abuse and things. And, and what can government do to change that? And it's not just health. If you want uh, to reduce dependence on, on addictions, including alcohol and tobacco and stuff, there's often an economic element uh, to that as well. And that's why I've always been a big advocate of cross-government cooperation. I, I think within government, not enough of the departments work with each other and talk to each other um, and work out how they can leverage each other's objectives. You know, to, again, to very quickly give you an example, you know, if you're if you're in uh, if you're in the health department and uh, you want to reduce the incidence of mental health problems, you know, it's not just up to the health department. They often pick up the issue when it's too late or when when the a problem has really progressed. But think about the role the education department can play. The, the, the culture department, the, the, um, the welfare department. So they can all departments, they work together, I think government can achieve more easily some of those objectives. Sure, and in your whole career thus far, <clears throat> you've definitely faced both political successes and challenges, but could you share a particular decision or moment that you're especially proud of to this day? <laughs> um, I would again. Let me turn to, if I may, my last role in government, which was, uh, as we discussed, as health secretary. Sure. Uh, I, I'll never forget the moment I learned about a, a new variant of uh, COVID, which became to be known as Omicron, and, sure. and that was especially concerning uh, for 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 governments, for health professionals across the world, because it was highly, highly contagious. And at the point we learned about it, we weren't entirely sure how it would interact with the then vaccines. And uh, and so then I had to make a quick decision. This was sort of, I think it would have been November 2021. Right. And then I had to make a decision, which was, do we lock down again because of this new variant and the rate it's spreading and we don't know about interaction with vaccines like many countries in Europe decided to do? Or do we rely on pharmaceutical defenses, especially the booster dose? And uh, because there was some real evidence that if we were able to give adults over the age of 30 plus a booster dose, then that would give them the right level of protection. And I was confronted with this decision and I had to decide whether I thought it was possible for us to boost the almost the entire adult population over the age of 30 within seven or eight weeks 
and uh, it never been done. I decided that we were going to go for that and we were going to do it. And it meant we were going to have to try and boost almost a million people a day. Never, ever had been done in any country to that proportion. And we did it. And it yeah. turned out to be the right decision. But that was a, you know, a, a real moment to, you know, where we could have gone one way or the other. Sure. I think, I think that's, <laughs> that's an amazing, well, definitely now looking back in hindsight, I think that was an amazing decision to make. Mm. Um, but Thank you. Finally, what advice would you offer to aspiring politicians and leaders looking to make a positive impact on their communities as well as their countries? Uh, I would say probably a couple of things. Um, one is get involved. You know, you're, whatever age you are, you can, you can do something. If you want to make a positive change to your country, to your communities, then show people that you mean it. Don't just sort of turn up when you're 30 or 40 and say, look, I want to go to politics because I care about community. Because frankly, if you haven't shown any inclination to do that before that date in any meaningful way, then no one's going to believe you and they're probably right to dismiss you, right? Sure. To get involved. So if you're a young, you know, 15 year old, 17 year old, 20 year old, you know, you, 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 there's always something that you can do no matter how busy you are. Maybe it's a local charity. Maybe it's a social enterprise. Maybe it's in some new idea that's going to help others. And so that's the first thing. Get involved, you know, no matter what stage of your life you're at. And the second thing I just say is that, you know, I meet a lot of people, young people, that say, look, I want to get into politics. I want to be an MP. Maybe one day I can be a minister. Great. You know, I admire their ambition. And many think that the way to do that is to go to university, study politics or something similar. Then once you leave university, go and work in, I don't know, in parliament or for some you know, newspaper or something covering politics. And, and that's not, that's one route. It works for some people. But sure. I would just say, forget all that. There is no, you know, uh, standard route into politics. The best route into politics is just the focus on what you're good at and just be bloody good at it. Right? <laughs> right. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be medicine, it could be architecture, it could be whatever, right? Yeah. Just do that and be very good at it. Best route is the personal route, the most personal route for yes. the individual. Yes, brilliant. We'd like to express our deepest gratitude to Mr. Sergeant Jarvid for joining us today. His thoughtful insights and profound understanding of critical issues have truly enriched our discussion. We hope you, our cherished listeners, found this episode as enlightening as we did. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the OMLS podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.